Episode 5, More Revelation and the Curse of a Prophet. Welcome to The Hidden Bible, a podcast about the strange, the obscure, the confusing. Do I dare to say it? The contradictory passages of the Christian Bible. I am your host, Deacon Harvey Santiago, a Catholic permanent deacon from the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And you are listening to The Hidden Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today you might notice our sound is a bit different with some background noises. This is because I'm not in my studio but find myself forced to record on the field. Hopefully these extra sounds will not distract you too much. As always, I am your host, Deacon Harvey Santiago, and you are listening to The Hidden Bible, the podcast about the less quoted passages of the Bible. I pray you had a grace-filled Christmas season and that your winter is not as cold as it has been here in the East Coast of the United States. Before we move on with our show, I would like to invite you to like our Facebook page so that you are abreast of our latest news. Just do a search for the Hidden Bible podcast in Facebook. If you would like to suggest a topic or have any questions, you could send them to thehiddenbible at gmail.com or you might try my personal email, deaconharvey at yahoo.com. Either way, just let me know what you think of the podcast so far. Well, with that out of the way, on with the show. Last time we talked about Revelation being the result of God's desire to let his creation know who he is. We discussed the Bible as a work containing the history of this revelation, and the Christian believed that the culmination of this revelation was achieved in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there is one important point I would like to make here. Everything we talked about in the third episode of the podcast about divine absence applies to Jesus. What I mean is that although the apostles were able to see and hear and touch Jesus, what they were experiencing was something beyond their capacity to explain with words. We see many times in the New Testament as each writer tries to give extra information of what they are seeing as a way to explain better something Jesus was saying or doing. Now, if Jesus is the total revelation of God, then it is fair to consider the Bible, especially the parts which refer to Jesus as the instrument by which this revelation happens to us 
last time we also mentioned five different types of revelation. Today I would like to extend our discussion to the first two models. The first model we will be visiting is revelation as doctrine, meaning God self-manifesting by the commands he gave. These were recorded in a Hebrew Holy Scripture, what Christians call the Old Testament, as well as the commands recorded in the New Testament. The books of the Bible are such record. In this model, we discover God by the moral laws he gives, especially the Ten Commandments and the Jewish law. Notice that, like we mentioned in the last podcast, the reason for the law was to slowly bring the people of Israel away from their idolatrous religion into a religion based on a strict moral code, transforming these people from an enslaved ethnic group into a great nation. The second model is revelation as history. God manifestation, not on the laws he communicated, but in the sometimes miraculous, sometimes ordinary events which are recorded in the Bible. The whole history of the people of Israel is one long attempt from God to self-manifest who he is and what are his plans for creation. I would like to point out that in the first few episodes of the Hidden Bible, we have seen these two models in action. For example, last time we talked about the miraculous and historical events which resulted in the birth of Jesus the Christ. On the other hand, in our second episode, we saw not a miraculous event, but Jesus himself explaining the correct way in which a specific law should be applied. Well, folks, I think that is as much as I would like to say about Revelation and the Bible. Starting in our next episode, I will use this first segment of the program to explain how this work that we call the Bible came to be. A kind of history of the Bible. But today we will spend the rest of our time looking at one of the strangest events recorded in the Old Testament. This is the kind of reading which makes people exclaim, Is that really in the Bible? The passage I have in mind is 2 Kings chapter 2, 23rd and 24th. Let me read it to you. And he went up from thence into Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bold head, go up. Thou bold head? And he turned back and looked at them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the woods, and tear forty and two children of them. As you can see, this is one of those Bible passages which can cause quite a reaction. It seems pretty clear that the prophet Elisha, the one that this passage is describing, overreacted to some little kids poking fun at him by placing a curse on them. But that is nothing compared to what God's answer was. Like I always say, for Christians it is important to acknowledge the feelings these type of passages 
evoke. But once this is done, it is also important to take a second look at the reading with a more critical eye. When this is done, one has to admit these two verses sound a bit strange. In fact, it seems that the author goes out of his way to give details which on second thought seem too specific and do not add anything to the story. For example, there is this thing about bullhead. Why this specific insult? Then there is this insistence on numbers like two she-bears or 42 children. Of course, this is the moment to remember that when it comes to the Bible, context is everything. So let's try to place these lines under this microscope and see what we get. Now before we do this, there is one important point I need to make, and that is the unfortunate use of the phrase little children in this reading. Although my policy is to stay away from arguments which are based on the translation of this word or that word, today I have to make an exception, because much depends on this point. The original Hebrew expression in this passage is nirin getanim. From other uses of this expression in the Bible, we know that a better translation would be young lads or young men from around 12 to 30 years old. I have not been able to find why this mistranslation happened, but I suspect that it is caused because on the Greek translation of the Old Testament, also known as the Septuagint, the expression used is pueri parvi, which could mean young child or young man. The problem with using children instead of the more accurate lads or young men is that it gives the impression that this was a case of some urchins poking fun at an old man when the reality is very different. Why? Well, as it happens, from information we can gather from the second books of Kings, we know that Elisha was about 20 years old when this happens, the same age of these children. By translating this word correctly, the mental image we get when reading these two verses is different. Now we have a group of young men heckling another young man. But they were not just heckling him. They are calling him a very specific word, bullhead. Now, here scholars are divided in the meaning of this word. As a man in his 20s, it's really difficult to think that Elisha was naturally bullheaded. So we have two options. Either Elisha cut his own hair, or he was not bullheaded at all. Some scholars believe that Elisha wore his head bald as a sign that he was a prophet of Yahweh. Others, and I agree with this, believe that calling someone bald-headed was an insult. In fact, since only lepers were required to wear their head bald to let others know they were unclean, by telling Elisha, go up, bald-head, they were actually threatening him telling him that they view him as a leper and that they were going to treat him accordingly by stoning if he did not leave 
their area. But why would they want Elisha to leave this area? Well, from verses preceding these two, we know that the prophet was in Jericho and that he was on the way to Bethel, which places this event between these two cities. Archaeologists had determined that in the times of Elisha, the people in this area were dedicated to the worship of the god Baal. So as you can see, they saw Elisha as a prophet of a foreign god, one who needed to be removed from their land. The passage tells us that Elisha turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now, Elisha did not call bears to attack and kill his adversaries. Now, let's take a look at the 42 young men which were mauled by the bears. This number is quite symbolic, 42. And no, it's not just the answer to the meaning of life and everything like Douglas Adams would like you to believe, but the result of the multiplication of six times seven. Now, scholars have always indicated that these two numbers have a deep meaning to the writers of the Bible, seven being the number used to represent perfection, meaning God, and six, the number to represent incompletion, or the one wanting to be like God, but falling short. So for the readers of this story, 42 is more than just a number of casualties, but a representation of the casualties resulting from the clash of two conflicting forces, God and Baal. Now there is something else behind this 42. Think about it. This number is quite high for a number of casualties. If this number is accurate, it points to the fact that the number of young men threatening Elisha was quite high, since it would take quite a bit of effort for two bears to cause this amount of carnage. In fact, it would take a number in the hundreds to make this feasible meaning for two wild animals to kill this amount of people in the same place at the same time. Now let us take a look at the two she-bears. That is quite a specific detail. Not only bears, but female bears. Well, if you think about it, finding the gender of a bear is not as easy as you might think. Not to be graphic, but you will have to be looking at the bear just in the right angle. Unless, of course, the she-bear had cubs. In fact, it is well known that she-bears become more dangerous when they perceive danger to their cubs. So most likely, this is the reason for this detail, and perhaps what triggered the attack as female bears are very protective of their cubs. Now, like I said before, the area where this event took place was controlled by the cult of Baal, god of rain, thunder, and fertility. The action of the bears right after Elisha's curse shows how his god uses a clear sign of fertility, bears with cubs, to punish the ones which were threatening God's prophet. So now we start to see a different picture. Although in the first look, it seems that this is the story of an old man overreacting to the harmless teasing of a few children, 
we see that in fact, Elisha might have feared for his life when confronted with literally dozens of young men heckling and antagonizing him. There's still one more point. Elisha did not call the bears to attack and kill his adversaries. Why such an answer to Elisha's curse by God? Why send to wild animals to maul and kill this man? The passage tells us that Elisha turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. Well, we have to remember that Elisha was a prophet from God, and an affront against Elisha was an affront against God himself. Being a prophet demanded a certain amount of respect. Now the text says that Elisha cursed them. It does not say that he called the bears upon them or asked God to kill anyone. God saw fit to send these two wild animals to send a message to the worshipers of Baal that his prophet should be held in high regard. With this action, God is just holding his side of the bargain as it was recorded in the Levitical law. If you remain hostile towards me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 21-22. So in conclusion, when placed in its proper context and we look at the historical data, one has to conclude that this was hardly the atrocity that is often presented to be. The reason why this was recorded in scripture was because this was a significant example of how the God of Israel showed his strength and help towards those who called upon his help. Well, folks, this is all for today. I invite you to send me any comments at my personal email, deaconharvey at yahoo.com, or at our address, thehiddenbible at gmail.com. Next month, we will inaugurate a new section called the History of the Bible, and we will start by looking at what else? The Index of the Bible. Also, we will answer the question, were there really giants in the Bible? Until then, and through the intercession of Saint Ephraim, the Syrian, deacon and doctor of the church, may the blessings of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. And remember, Viva Cristo Rey! <laughs>